Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium on this beautiful Seattle morning that we have. All right, so just so glad that you all are here. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It's my great honor and privilege to serve as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. I get the, the joy and the privilege of opening up God's word with you all this morning as we are in the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so this final Sunday in the Advent season as we anticipate Christmas Eve here in just a couple of days. And so as we begin this morning, I want to talk for a moment about this, about longing for the end of the story, because that's what we're going to look at here in a moment. We're going to look at the end of the story. We're going to be in the very last chapter of the Bible, all right? We've been looking at the closing chapters of the Bible over the last few weeks, and this morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 22, and so I'll give you some more instruction on that in a moment. But I want us to think about this, this longing for the end of the story, to know how a story is going to turn out. And so if you ever happen to find yourself at my house, all right, and you are sitting down to watch a movie, perhaps with my wife and I, um, one of the things you might see happen, all right, at some point is she will, especially if it's an intense movie, now if it's a comedy, we're in the clear, but if it's a bit of an intense, some sort of thriller, drama kind of movie, at some point midway through the film, uh, I will look over and with great judgment, I'll be like, why do you have your phone out, right, as if I never have my phone out, all right, uh, but I will ask, why do you have your phone out, and she will look over and say, I'm reading about the end of the movie. Um, and I will be like, what in the world? Why would you do that? She's like, so that I can actually enjoy the rest of it. All right, now, why? It's because this perspective of once you know how it turns out, when you know how it resolves, and you can quick do that Google search and be like, oh, okay, this is gonna be okay. All right, the hero's going to, to make it, all of that, that sort of thing. Then you can actually sort of rest. The, the anxiety level goes down a bit. and You can just sort of enjoy the story and watching it unfold. And this morning, as we look at the end of the story, this invitation that we have to, it's an invitation really to live in light of the end of the story. The end of the Bible tells us, it informs how we're to live now. And I believe if we understand it, it not only informs, but it transforms how you and I are called to live our life right here and right now. Because that's ultimately what Advent is about. Advent is more than just the countdown to Christmas as we've been talking about each week, all right, there is this celebration of the first advent. It's about this arrival, this coming of Christ, the Messiah, and we'll celebrate that on Christmas Eve. But this season of advent is also a season of longing and of waiting and of wondering, okay, when is everything going to be set right? Will it be set right? And we're longing for the second advent. We're longing for the return. And Revelation chapter 22 tells us about that return of Jesus, about the second advent. And if we understand that, if we see where this is the kind of how the story begins to resolve, man, I think there's real implications for you and I in terms of how we live our life right here, right now. It doesn't mean there's not gonna be stress. It doesn't mean there's not gonna be moments of anxiety. But if we could get a bit of a, perspective and of a picture, oh, this is where it's heading. I believe God in his grace wants to communicate to us this morning, like, hey, I want you to zoom out a bit. I want you to see what I have for you if you're a follower of me. So if you would, if you could brought a Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 22. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but we're going to look at the first seven verses. And if you didn't bring a Bible on the back tables there, there's some paperback ones. I would encourage you to get up, grab one of those. 1,144, that's the page number. Um, it's literally like 
the very end of the Bible, all right? So you can grab that. The other option you always have, too, is if you brought your phone with you, go to cpwp.life, swipe over to the second card. It says message notes. There you'll find the text uh, that's written, uh, the text that will be in this morning. Anything that's up on the, the screen this morning will be there, the space for you to take notes. And so I'm gonna go ahead and read this, and uh, I wanna invite you, would you stand as I read God's word this morning? Revelation chapter 22 Verses 1 to 7, remembering that John has been given this vision, all right, the Apostle John, and here's where we pick up the story. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Verse six, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words, the prophecy of this book. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So throughout our time of Advent, each week, we've been looking at different aspects towards the end of the Bible. We started in Revelation 19, all right, we looked at all of chapter 21, and this morning what we have is this continuation of this vision that John has been given. He's being, he's being shown sort of the, the end of the story, how it's going to, to resolve. He didn't have to use Google to figure that out. He had God himself, all right, communicate through an angel, given this vision, like, here's how the story is is playing out, and you have to remember, as we talked about last week, if you were here, that the group of people that are getting this word, this vision from that John is receiving, the, who he's communicating to, were experiencing immense suffering. And so they wanted to know, not just in the abstract, but like, how is this gonna work out? Because we're living under the rule and reign of the Caesar, and he is threatening to put us to death. He's killed off many of our family members. There's a real threat against Christianity, against the followers of Jesus. So they want to know, right? Like we would want to know that. Like, oh, is there hope for us? And so these words, this vision is given by God. It's part of his grace to those people. But the reality is a couple thousand years later, though the circumstances might be different, you've got real pain, you've got sorrow, you've got things that you brought in here this morning that are weighing on your hearts. There's gonna be things this morning that you are gonna to have to fight against that voice that's gonna to wanna to distract you, that's gonna to wanna to say, hey, you gotta take care of this, you gotta do this, instead of focusing even on what God would have for us this morning. So my prayer is that we might be able to hear from God. You don't need to hear from me, all right? What I have to say is not very interesting or profound, but God's word, it is living and active and trusting that God's spirit is here with us this morning and is going to work in and through this text. And so really what I wanna talk about at the beginning here is what you have here is this consummation. Revelation 22 is like this big epic picture of like how the story resolves, how it ends. It's this picture of completeness and of wholeness. God is not 
Well, God is not like me in many ways. One of the ways that I'm very different than God is God sets out a plan and he fully accomplishes everything. Like if you imagine he's got this massive cosmic checklist if I need to get this done, he's literally checked everything off. There's nothing that slips by him. There's nothing that's like, "Mm, I ran out of energy. I don't really feel like doing that. Now, me, I like projects and I like to finish them about 70, 80%, all right? And then just kind of leave some things going, right? Like, oh, I'll come back to that. It's open-ended. I don't know how that's all going to resolve. And just maybe people won't notice that baseboard that's not painted. Whatever, right? Like, that can be how I tend to operate. But our God, it's complete. It's whole. There's this consummation. And what he's talking about in these first three verses is this big picture. We're going to look at personal renewal in a moment. But it starts out with this cosmic renewal that God is renewing everything. That the point of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible, is not that God is going to just obliterate this place and it's a massive do-over, but rather he's going to come, and we looked at this last week in chapter 21, he's going to renew. It's a new heavens and a new earth. What ultimately is happening here, if we're going to understand the storyline of the scriptures, it's about how God is seeking to get us back to Eden. But it's not just the Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a new and better Eden. It's what Eden would have been had sin not entered the picture. And if our original parents had been able to do what they were called to do, and if we had all been living this story out to see God's kingdom advance, he's returning us to that. And that's what's happening. There's this cosmic renewal. And so the language... Again, it overlaps a lot with chapter 21, but what we see here is spoken of that there is this, talked about this new Jerusalem, there's this city. But what I find really interesting is maybe a way to think about it is it's, it's a garden city. Meaning, did you notice some of the language? I mean, we'll look at some of this more detail in a moment, but there's a river of the water of life and it's bright as crystal and it's flowing and it's through the middle of the street of the city. Huh, interesting. So. There's the street, there's this boulevard, but there's also this pure, like as this crystal river, like it's just this amazing sight to behold. So basically there's all this natural wonder. There's all the things, it sounds like an amazing place to vacation if you're into like the outdoors, like man, this would be amazing. I wanna kayak down that river, right? Forget these murky things in Florida, man, I want that. But at the same time, it speaks of a city that there's creativity and there would be commerce. There'd be culture, there'd be arts, all these things to be able to enjoy. And so the picture at the end of the scriptures is not us getting zapped up into the clouds and just sort of issued your harp and you play that for eternity, but rather like you and I are going to inhabit this garden city. This is what Eden was originally supposed to be. It started as a garden, but it was meant to be taken further. God said, go and make the rest of the, the world like this place and develop culture and create tools and all of these things. And so that's the picture that is there. But there's a tension, isn't it? Like if you live in and around this area, even when local elections will tend to come up, one of the things that you will see, particularly if you pay attention to some of the signs within a few mile radius of the building that we're in right now in the city of Winter Park, right? There's an emphasis here and it's right and good and beautiful, right? That there's, hey, it's a city, but there's also this emphasis on park, like it's in the name, right? And so you will literally have two camps kind of competing agendas that we gotta make it more park-like, natural beauty, or we gotta develop the commerce, the city, we have to have all of that. And there's a tension, but apparently not for Jesus. She's like, oh, I can do both, right? Like he's the candidate we're looking for. He's like, no, 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 we can preserve all the parks and the nature and the beauty and all of that is gonna flourish. It's gonna just speak of God's glory and wonder. And there's no pollution, there's nothing. And yet there's all this culture and life and there's good restaurants and food and things to enjoy and the arts, creativity, all of that. So this is the picture that we're given. And then it tells us, some of it will look, at these very quickly, but it says, you know, the throne of the lamb, 
And so Jesus as the, the Lamb of God, the one who's taken away the, the sins of the world, means he's ruling and he's reigning. And then it tells us flowing out from this throne is the water of life. The river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God. And what's fascinating, right, if you were to go and you were to travel to Jerusalem, you would not see a river that is flowing through, you know, the, the, the center of that, that city. But in the new heavens and new earth and this new Jerusalem that's going to come down, apparently out of the throne, the source then of this water of life that's bringing life to everything flows from God himself. Now, the original hearers of this word, there would have been all sorts of like lights on the dashboard going off because they would have been like, oh, like the dots would have been being connected because there's another place where we hear of a river where there was the presence of God. Because the throne, it means that this is the, the temple that, that we looked at this even in Revelation 21, that everything is becoming the temple of God. It's where the presence of God is. And so in Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the picture, the garden, the Garden of Eden is where the presence of God was, that the Adam and Eve would walk with, with God in the cool of the day, like that sort of imagery there. And it tells us a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And so Genesis 2, verse 10, talks about there's the presence of God and then there's this river. The prophet Ezekiel, all right? I don't know if you're familiar with that book. There's some really fascinating, there's lots of imagery, again, very similar to the book of Revelation. Toward the end in chapter 47, I'll read you a few verses here, speaks then of this fulfillment of like the presence of God and what's going to happen. And so John literally is getting this vision that was similar to what Ezekiel got hundreds of years prior. He says, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and behold, Water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And if you skip ahead a few verses, down to verse 9 of Ezekiel 47, it says, For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. It's this beautiful picture of somehow this river... It's not murky and nasty. It is crystal and everywhere that it goes, it's bringing life. And the places where we talked about, like where the sea was thought of as the place of chaos and of disorder, all right, this fresh water is flowing in and everything is being renewed. This is a way to communicate, hey, we're going back ultimately to our home. It's this new and better Eden. Another connection in the first three verses, it speaks of this tree. Did you hear about this tree? Did you see? I mean, it's a very fascinating sort of picture that's given. All right, so you've got the river, and then on either side of the river, this is in verse 2, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Well, where else have we heard about a tree of life before? Again, we're back in the Genesis accounts. He had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he had the tree of life. And God, in his grace, after Adam and Eve's sin, kicked them out of the garden, not because he's mean and doesn't want them to enjoy life, but rather, if they were in this sinful state, if they went and reached for the tree of life, then they would have been stuck in that forever. And so God guards with an angel, with the sword. He prohibits them from going back into Eden. Why? That's part of his grace and his mercy. And now John is getting this picture of like, okay, but one day we're going to have access to the tree of life. And this tree somehow is growing on both sides of the river. It tells us that it's producing fruit every month, all right, which is apparently pretty amazing. Or right? I don't know a lot about fruit trees, but that's not normal. Oh, and by the way, it's different kinds of fruits. 
So like if you planted an orange tree in your yard, right, and suddenly like apples grew from it, you'd be like, okay, either that was mismarked, all right, but if the next month it grows oranges and then it's lemons the next month, and that, right, you're like, what is happening here? But it's God's way of communicating, I'm gonna, everything's gonna flourish. You're gonna be fed, you're gonna be satisfied. There's also this imagery, this, this number that's significant of 12. It's God's way of saying he raised up, all right, he had he had the 12 tribes of Israel, and then he had the 12 apostles, and what were they supposed to do? They were called not only for the Jewish people, but to be a blessing to all people, and he's saying, this is going out to the nations. It's what God told Abraham. You're gonna be blessed in order to be a blessing. So the tree of life, and so it's all this Eden imagery that's coming. Again, Genesis chapter two speaks of this. Out of the ground, uh, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant, pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's that connection. And again, in Ezekiel 47, and on the banks, look how similar this is to Revelation. On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. This is what happens when you get connected to the presence of God. The water that flows from the sanctuary, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And I love the language that's used in here as John continues to communicate this vision. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. That there's a picture here one day in this cosmic renewal where you and I will be restored and renewed if we're a follower of Jesus to what our original calling is, and it's to worship God. Now, again, lest you think that that's just you in a choir for all of eternity, that's not what it's speaking of, because there's ways to glorify God. I love what Paul would write to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so it's this pretty all-encompassing list, like there's ways to honor and glorify God and to worship him. Our problem right, isn't a lack of worship. Our problem is that every single person who's ever walked the earth is a worshiper, but not all of us are worshiping the true King Jesus. We're all worshipers at heart. We're all giving our affections to certain things. And the question becomes, are you rightly ordered in your worship? Since ever, ever since Genesis chapter three, when sin entered and there's this rebellion by Adam and Eve, and that's their story, but it's also our story. Lest we think for a moment like, oh, I would do better. No, I wouldn't do better. You wouldn't do better. All right, this is how it would play out. The reality is that everything has been cursed. Everything has been fractured. And the beautiful good news of what this tree of life and this river of life are doing, it's bringing healing from the curse. That the curse has literally seeped its way into everything. We know this, don't we? I mean, just think about it for a moment. I'm not talking just out there in the world or just when you turn on the news, although we do see that as well, but just even think in your own life and your immediate, like in your life, in your household, your friends, family, like even closest to you. I mean, just think about what we experience. There's physical brokenness. There's emotional brokenness and alienation. There is psychological brokenness and alienation. There's, I said, there's, there's physical, there's spiritual, there's emotional, there's all of these things. We feel the effects. Everything is accursed. And God communicates through his servant John for us sitting here a couple thousand years later. Hey, that emotional pain that you carry, one day 
It's all going to go away. God is going to wipe away every tear, this intimacy, that psychological pain and brokenness where you're just like, I can't quite seem to like make any progress. I'm like, my biggest problem is between my ears. Like, I just don't know what to do. He's going to heal that. Maybe you've got physical pain, things that you're wrestling with, things that diseases that you battle, things that are just ongoing pain that you're dealing with, things that are a mystery to you. He's like, I'm going to heal all of that. The spiritual brokenness, the alienation that we feel that has disrupted our relationship with God and consequently then disrupted our relationship with other people, that relational healing is going to take place. Our spiritual healing is going to take place, that God is going to renew everything. It's this healing from the curse because the curse has seeped into every nook and cranny and is disrupted, all right? It has violated every part of God's good creation. But here's the beautiful good news that Jesus was willing to bear that curse. This is what Paul would write to the Galatians in Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, that Jesus willingly went and took the curse upon himself. The wrath of God, what you and I deserve, all right, all of the emotional pain, physical pain, psychological pain, spiritual pain, every last bit of it, relational, that was actually what we deserved. And Jesus says, I'll take that curse upon myself so that what? That you and I can actually have the curse lifted. This is why, and we're gonna sing this later on, so I'm not gonna sing it for you. I would hate to ruin the song for you, but one of the most joyous songs, all right, in this Christmas season uh, is a song. Yes, it's a Christmas song, but may I put before you as well, it is a consummation song. Like joy to the world. Look at the lyrics that are here. It speaks of the curse being lifted. It says joy to the world, what? The Savior reigns. The problem is when I think that I'm reigning and that everything needs to be about me and the problem in your life is when you think you're reigning or everything's up to you somehow or that you know best. No, no, no. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. So we're called to just worship. God is on the throne. He is to be worshiped while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. Guess what? Everybody's getting in on this worship, right? Not just you and me, but everything, all of creation, which Romans 8 tells us, has been in this state of just groaning, waiting to be renewed. It's gonna repeat the sounding joy over and over and over again. Repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. It's joy in what? Not in what we've done, not what we've accomplished. It's joy that the God-man, Jesus, entered into the world, was hung on a tree to take the curse, and he lifted that because it was put on him. And he dealt with Satan's sin and death once and for all. And then, if you know the song, it continues, so no more let sins and sorrows grow. Right now, we still feel that. That's this Advent season, this is the tension of it. The sorrows, they, they do grow. Maybe you were sold a version of Christianity, it was like, hey, you just believe, all right, sorrows are gonna go away, health, wealth, and prosperity. Confront that person over Christmas, tell me, I lied to you, right? It's not the reality, but in that, there's still reason to have joy because Jesus is on the throne. He has promised to come back. He is in the business of renewing everything. So north thorns infest the ground. This is part of the curse, right? Genesis three, thorns and thistles. This past week, there are things about your job, whatever that happens to be, whether you got paid for this particular role you have or not, you have work, you have vocation, you have job, there's things that you do. My guess is it didn't all go according to plan. Why? Thorns and thistles, the curse. It's like, oh, right? But it's good to be reminded, oh, yes, this is the tension we're living in. 
It's not some unique thing that just happened to you as if the world was out to get you. No, thorns and thistles. But then it tells us, that's what we get to sing and proclaim. He comes to make his blessings flow. Begin to think of the river, of the water, of life. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. The curse seeped into every nook and cranny and began to disrupt and violate everything that was good about God's creation. But there's something better that pushes out that. What Jesus has ushered in is what flows out from the throne, this water of life. And it flows down into the places of deep psychological pain, emotional pain, relational pain, psychological. We could go on and on and on. There's nothing that is beyond the scope of God's healing. Not for you or not for anybody else. So that person that you think, ah, they can't possibly come to believe in Jesus. They're so far gone. No, no. Not if this is true, right? The words of this song, not because they're the Bible, but they're telling the story of the Bible. Far as the curse is found, you cannot outrun God's love. It goes deeper. It will, the water will flow into the darkest places. Even the places in your heart that you know are there, you're just like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to deal with that. I'm not even sure I know what they are. The God of the universe knows. The God of the universe, in light of that, still sent his son. He didn't send his son because he's like, okay, you've done a good job, world, of sort of identifying your main problem. I'm gonna, here to help you kind of get home. He's like, no, no, you don't even have any idea how far the brokenness and the alienation goes, but I'm gonna send my son. So what? So that everything can rejoice once again as it was created for. And so this is that cosmic renewal. Now, look with me at verses four to five. It's not just this cosmic renewal and this final consummation. There's also a personal renewal, both in the future, but I also want you to hear this. I believe it starts right here and right now. And so this, again, is living in light of the end of the story. If you and I know what's being communicated in Revelation 22, you and I will be able to live today, tomorrow, like in this community that we've been placed in, in this time and place, with a heart, I believe, that can be rightly ordered and oriented towards our God. Revelation 22, 4 to 5, then says this. They will see his face. So when all this happens, speaking of the followers of Jesus, they will see his face. They will see God's face. His name will be on their foreheads. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so what we're speaking of here, what is being spoken of here, is this personal flourishing, right? This personal renewal. So let me call your attention to just a couple of things. This idea is incredibly profound, which says they will see his face. Now we can just kind of read that and be like, okay, yeah, whatever. But to an original audience here, like no one gets to see the face of God. I mean, Moses even asked for, for this and God's like, you have no idea what you're asking. Like if you saw my face, you would just get obliterated. He's like, so I'm gonna pass by. He hides him in the cleft of this rock. He sees like the back of God passing by. And it tells us after that, like, Moses was just like glowing radiant, just like he'd been in this tiny little bit of the presence of God. And this is telling us, though, we actually, not just someday off in the future, but even right here, right now, because of what Jesus has done and accomplished, and if you've surrendered to him, he's telling us, like, you're a priest. Because priests lead in worship. Priests have access to God. And it's not access somewhere off in the distant future. It's access to God right now. It's 
why the writer of Hebrews would tell us to approach the, the throne of God, the throne of grace with confidence. Why? It's not confidence in myself. Hey, God, I'm rolling in. You kind of come strutting in like, like you own the place. No, no, it's not that. It's rather like Jesus literally has done everything. He's made it possible. He's telling us, you're a priest, like you have access. This is ultimately what heaven is, new heavens and new earth, it's about the presence of God. James Hamilton in his commentary on this said it this way, says if you found out that God and Jesus weren't going to be in heaven, but the street would still be gold and the gates, the gates still pearl and the walls jasper and the water living and the trees, leaves are full of healing and all your dearly departed were there, but Jesus and the Father would not be there, would you still want to go, he asks. And if you hesitate at all, please recognize that heaven without Jesus and the Father would be nothing less than a gold-plated hell. Jesus and the Father are heaven, and, there's no, and that is no less true now than it will be then. So there's this invitation, really, that we get to access the presence of God right here, right now. And then it's going to be completed, the consummation of all, fully experienced when Jesus comes back, the second advent. But there's an invitation right now do you know that like that's the language that's being used it says this they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads it wasn't just any priest this is an old testament reference it was the high priest would have the name of god when he would go in on an appointed day each year to go into the holy of holies to make sacrifice atonement for the sins of the people there was this name and now what is it telling us every single one of us have on our forehead the name of God. What it means is this. It's not saying you're God and I'm God. It's saying God claims you. You belong to God. You've been named by God. You carry his name. He has given you a new identity. This is why this personal renewal can start now. Do you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, regardless of how you sinned this past week, how you messed up, all your dreams and aspirations that haven't quite come true, all the things that you're thinking about, like this upcoming week at a Christmas gathering that you're gonna have to navigate and all the questions that might get asked of you and you don't love the answers you're gonna have for certain family members that always seem to ask the wrong question, right? Like all of that stuff. You have been claimed, you've been named by the God of the universe. It's this language of, that one's mine. Like this past year, I think of this for my kids, like with swimming, all right? My older daughter, when she was swimming this season, I got into the whole team and I would cheer for her whole team. But I'll tell you what, I cheered louder and more obnoxiously right. When what? When she was swimming. Why? Because that's mine. Like That's my namesake doing that and my wife's, all right? And she's got the skill for my wife. But you get what I'm saying, right? It's this language here of like, oh my goodness, that was my, now, the God of the universe has named you and it's way better than us cheering for our kids. It's God cheering you on, being like, that one's mine. I love that person, that son or daughter. I'm proud of them. I'm rejoicing over them with singing, not because they're amazing in and of themselves, but because they've surrendered their life to Christ and now all he can see is his son Jesus. And if you think for a moment that the father's not proud of his son Jesus, you haven't read the Bible. And so it's telling us, Oh my goodness, you've been named by the God of the universe. This should be so incredibly freeing. And so one of the things as we think about renewal, not just for ourselves, but to offer the world, here's what I wanna put before you. I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I are called to offer the world our rest. What do I mean by that? We should understand, and we're growing in this. I'm not saying this comes easily. It's not just like, okay, boom, I, now I'm transformed. But bit by bit, understanding, oh, yes, I am not how well my business is doing. 
I am not how well my kids are doing or my family or my relationship. I'm not defined by whether I am in a good marriage or in a healthy marriage or that I'm married or not married. I'm not defined by my income. All these things, you've been named by the God of the universe. He claims you. And so there should be this rest that the world knows nothing of because there's this ongoing pursuit all the time. I mean, you just talk to people, right? And we would like to think, well, maybe it's just December, it's busy. Yeah, but that's everybody's answer. January, February, March, April, May, like on and on and on. There's this unrest. And as the church collectively and individually as Christians, we get to point to another way. Go and read Genesis 11. In, it's the, the construction of Babel, the Tower of Babel. We must make a name for ourselves. That drives everybody to this day. And the God of the universe is saying, why do you need to make a name for yourself? I've named you. You're mine. You don't need anything else. You get to offer the world your rest. And then it says this, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, did it surprise you? It surprises me that it didn't say Jesus will reign forever and ever, though that is actually true. It's also this language, you're going to reign. You will reign forever and ever. This is not you sitting on the sidelines. This is not you being like, okay, well, yeah, Jesus picked me, but I'm never gonna get any playing time, all right? This is you, like, you're in the game. You're ruling and reigning. Like, what in the world does that actually mean? Well, again, it's Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 language. There's this idea here that you're a king. Now, you're not the ultimate king. I'm not the ultimate king, all right? Jesus is, but he invites us to what? A restoration of our original identity. Adam and Eve as image bearers means that they were vice regents, meaning they were subservient to the king, but they were also called to rule and reign and claim the parts of the wilderness and the chaos and say, this is what it looks like when the church moves forward. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God advances. This is what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of how you handle your finances, how you do marriage, relationships, parenting, commerce, vacation, the arts, everything. You're a king and your work matters today. Not just off in the future. The end of the story informs your work today. I was reading a, a book um, by the singer songwriter who also writes uh, amazing books and novels. His name's Andrew Peterson. Um, some of you know I like Andrew Peterson quite a bit. He wrote this book called Adorning the Dark. I would highly commend it to you. And he talks about the creative process. He talks about sort of his little bit of an autobiography of how he even got into making a living in the arts. Now, I have no business reading it because I'm not artistic or anything like that, but I'm like, ooh, this is still fascinating. And in it, he talks about his neighbors. His neighbors had done something, and maybe you've experienced this or done this, but they were framing their new home, right? And so this sort of thing is, is going up. The husband and wife went to basically every two by four that they could find, and they began to write passages of scripture on everyone. Why? Not in some sort of mystical way that that's gonna, you know, the presence of God will be there, but it was this way that they would just remember, hey, we're recognizing this new home that we're building. It's a gift from God. It's to be used for God's purposes. It was how we can live out this personal and even cosmic renewal right here, right now, not just somewhere off in the future. It's not a vision of getting zapped up into the heavens and the cloud and just hanging out with the angels. It's like, no, our work matters. And so they wanted to write this out. Now, I'm gonna read you this quote and he's gonna make reference to this, but it's this encouragement, like, you're a king. You're a follower of Jesus, you've got work to do, and it matters. Whether you get paid for it or not. I love what Tim Keller said years ago. I was listening to a sermon. This might encourage those of you that might put yourself in the category of the struggling artist, all right? He's like, hey, most people right now, some of the most high-paying jobs are because things are broken in the world, all right? People aren't 
aren't healthy, so you call, call the doctor. Somebody's suing somebody, you call the lawyer. There, there's things that, there's a brokenness. He's like, that is good. That is, if you're in those fields, you are using what God has given you to serve, to advance the kingdom. Yes and amen to all of that. But what's gonna happen when the brokenness goes away? Like, I have a job because things are broken. You realize I'm not needed in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Let me tell you about Jesus, or you can go talk to him, right? So he's talking about the reality that like, what we're gonna be taking the, the raw materials of the earth that God has given to us and stewarding those and being creative, right? Fundamentally, when the brokenness goes away, suddenly the people are gonna have a leg up on everybody else. We're gonna be going to like, hey, can you coach me? Is the person that here on this earth is probably the struggling artist. Because what are they doing? They're taking the raw materials of this world and they're creating something beautiful. And so he's talking about this reality, like your work matters. And some of us are gonna be like, well, my whole work was about fixing what was broken, so I gotta learn a new trade in the new heavens and earth. You've got time. There'll be plenty of time to learn, right? So listen to these words about what starts right here, right now. The Christian's calling, in part, is to proclaim God's dominion in every corner of the world, in every corner of our hearts, too. It isn't that we're fighting a battle in which we must win the ground from the forces of evil. The ground is already won. Satan is just an outlaw. And we have the pleasure of declaring God's kingdom with love, service, and peace in our homes and communities. When you pray, now think about this, when you pray, dedicate your home, your yard, your bonus room, and dishwasher, and bicycle, and garden to the king. Have you ever thought about it in those terms? As surely as you dedicate your heart to him, dedicate your front porch. Daily pledge every cell of every tool at your disposal to his good pleasure because it's all sacred anyway. So when you go home today and you look around wherever it is that you live, the space that you inhabit or the car that you get into or the bike that you ride home in the rain today or whatever it happens to be, you look at that and be like, this is a tool. How can I use this to showcase what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God? I'm a king. How am I going to live now in light of this identity? He continues, he says, then, I wonder, and this is the kind of writing on the framed out house, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is rambling around in the temple of my heart, scribbling promises on every exposed bit of lumber, declaring my sacredness so that I will remember that I belong to him. And maybe when I'm old and I cross paths with some weary traveler, they'll sense a rightness, a pleasantness of place, and will experience a peace that they cannot understand or explain. That's of giving the world your rest. Stop a moment and look around. This is our Father's world. We are sacred, you and I. That's Revelation 22, this personal renewal. You've been named by God. You've been invited into a calling, a vocation, that you're a king. You're to use what God has given to you. And maybe right now you're not getting to live out your ideal career or you're not making the money that you wanted. But at the end of the day, there's a call not to die to ambition. It isn't that at all. You can pursue those desires. But there's also just remember everything that's been given to you has been meant to, to steward. Live as the king that you are, this vice regent living under the rule and reign of Jesus. We'll close with this. Look at 6 to 7. There is a confidence that we can have. He says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. In verse 7, Jesus speaks, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words, the prophecy of this book. 
Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And there's lots of speculation. That's why people tend to turn to the book of Revelation. Like, ooh, let's, let's see. We can figure it out or we can pick the date. Don't think that's what it was intended for. And lots of people have picked lots of dates and they haven't come true. But these, these words from Jesus are true. He says, I am coming soon. I don't know how soon that is. You don't know how soon that is. But what we can have a confidence in is the one that was hung on a tree for us to get us to the tree of life is one that we can believe in, that he was willing to do that for us. The one who drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I might drink deeply of the water of life. The fact that he did that for us gives me a confidence in him. The one that dealt with, that was dealt with the the curse, like he was cursed on your behalf so that you and I might be able to experience the, the blessing of God. When I begin to realize that's the story that's played out, how can I doubt for a moment that he's going to do this? Yes, there's pain and yes, there's hardship, but Jesus says, I am coming soon. Not only because of what he did on the cross, because if that had been the end of the story, then we are to be pitied. We're fools for believing in this story. But we know the cross wasn't the end of the story. The confidence that we can have is what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance. Like of all the things to pay attention to. Paul was a bright dude, right? He could have talked about any number of topics. He's like, hey, I got one thing I want to talk to you about as first importance. What I received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that that actually happened. Historically, he went to the cross. Historically, he was put into the tomb. And historically, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You and I can have confidence to live out as as kings, as ones that have been named by God, to live out our new identity, to give our rest to the world, because we know this is the story we're part of. Jesus died for us, and Jesus rose from the dead. What reason do I have to doubt that he's coming back? He has faithfully done everything that he said that he would do. And so the question for us becomes, in the midst of this time of Advent, of this waiting for the second Advent, will you trust Jesus? Now, maybe some of you, for the very first time, need to surrender and say, I've been trying to live my own life. I think I'm king. And I confess that I've lived in rebellion against you. And Jesus, I trust in you. If you want somebody to pray with you, like come seek me out, seek somebody out, one of the prayer teams later in this service. But trust Jesus for the first time. But it's not just the person who hasn't trusted in Jesus for the first time. It's for every single person that's a follower of Jesus. He's going to continue to invite you. Will you trust me in this? In this new circumstance? In this new situation? It's not just coast on the trust that you had before. He's constantly at work growing us and sanctifying us. Will you trust Jesus? And when you doubt for a moment, you're like, oh, this is so hard. Remember that he went to the cross. Remember that he was buried. Remember that he rose from the dead. Remember that this is the story that you're part of. Remember that he promised he's gonna come back. Remember that he's going to wipe away every tear. Remember that he's worthy of our trust. You have to look no further than the outstretched arms of our Savior bleeding on a cross for you and for me to know, oh, he's worthy of my trust. And Revelation ends with this, come Lord Jesus. And there is an end time cosmic aspect to that. So we pray that, but there's also a right here, right now. Come, Lord Jesus. And so I'm gonna lead us in prayer and just kind of guide us through for just a moment. If you've got kids in elementary, please, once we start communion, go get them. But right now, just I wanna lead us in prayer and then give us some instructions for communion. But let's pray together. Come, Lord Jesus. There's some area of your life right now where you need healing, where you need to experience the redemptive work of the gospel, a place where maybe you're not trusting Jesus and ask him, invite him and come Lord Jesus, fill me with faith. 
give me a joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so I want to lead us in a time here where we would confess, where we would celebrate the reality of the gospel, and that we would commit our lives to live out of our new identity. So let me guide us in a time of prayer here. Father, thank you for this journey that we've had in this Advent season to look at the end of the story. And God, I ask right now that your spirit would lead us graciously in this time of confession, of repentance. And so God, would you hear the prayers of your people, God, as we confess to you our need of you, as we confess our sins to you, knowing that you will forgive us. So hear the prayers of your people now. Holy Spirit, as you convict us of sin and you remind us of our, of our need for our God, we also ask that you would apply a gospel comfort. Would you help us to celebrate the story that we're part of right now? Would you stir our affections for King Jesus? Would you infuse our hearts and our minds with joy? Not because every situation or circumstance is easy, but because we know the story that we're part of. And so hear your, the prayers of your people now, God, as we celebrate and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your identity, um, that we are, we are a son, that we have an inheritance, that we are seen as perfect and spotless because of the sinless life that you lived and you gave us your righteousness. And in light of that, God, I pray that you would help us to respond to that graciousness, to live a life that is as a committed follower of you, that we would seek to be stewards of everything that you've given to us, that we would steward all our material possessions, the talents that we have, the abilities that you've given to us, the relationships. Help us to live in such a way that we understand that we're these vice regents, that we are called to rule and, and to reign, not as ultimate, but under your reign, Jesus. So Spirit, right now, would you lead in the hearts of your people here, bring something to mind that specifically of what it can look like to be committed maybe in an area, to trust, to trust you with something um, that we've been perhaps holding on to. Oh God, we thank you that you hear the prayers of your people. We pray, God, that in all of this, that you would get your glory and that we as your people, as your sons and your daughters, that we would experience just a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.